Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of My Old Kentucky Podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm here, Robert. I guess that's about what I can say. <laughs> I'm doing yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, I, I have moved since the last time we did the show, and uh, I... Uh, am not able to record as I normally do, and I've stuck Jasmine with the job, and it's it's going. We're here, we're recording, we've got a show. Who knows what day it's gonna come out, but it's gonna happen, and, and we're making it work. And we promise we'll be back to normal soon enough, but uh, you know, you get what you pay for in this industry, uh, and and that's, that's that. So today we did wanna talk, since it's the first show that we've had since the primary, we're just gonna kinda set up the race a little bit, talk a little bit, a bit about the races that are gonna be um, run here in November, the general election in Kentucky, who are the names who uh, is, uh, you know, running on both sides of the ticket, both Democratic and Republican. And then afterwards, I've got a couple of Louisville centric stories to talk about um, stuff that Mayor Greenberg has been putting into place since uh, over the past couple of weeks. So um, I definitely want to get to those things as well. Um, but yeah, uh, the main thing to do is to talk a little bit about those races that are being run. So Jasmine, um, let's talk a little bit about those things. Yeah, I think we've talked about most, if not all, of the candidates who are running, but we've kind of talked about them individually as they filed or um, in terms of the primary. But now the general election matchups are set, so we figured we would talk about who's running against who. So the first one, I'm going to start with Commissioner of Agriculture, and that is Jonathan Shell versus Sierra Inlow. Sierra Inlow is the Democrat nominee and she's from LaRue County and she went to the UK College of Agriculture. She has a bachelor's and a master's from the College of Ag and she works as an economic development consultant. She grew up on a multi-generational farm in in LaRue County and she's a graduate of Emerge, Kentucky and she defeated Michael Malone with 58% of the vote in the primary. Um, so that was the only Democratic race other than the governor's race that had a primary. And then on the Republican side, Jonathan Shell is from Garrett County. And he grew up working on a family farm there. And he was... We've talked about him on the show, you know, several times before. He was the youngest member of the General Assembly when he was elected to the Kentucky House in 2012. And he became the House Majority Floor Leader after spearheading candidate recruitment for the 2016 election, which was the big Republican wave when Republicans gained not just a majority in the House, uh, but a supermajority. Then he was defeated by Travis Brenda, who was an educator in the 2018 Republican primary when public education was a big discussion in Frankfurt. Um, He was defeated by Travis Brenda by just over 100 votes. But then Brenda was later defeated after just one term by Josh Bray, who won by less than 50 votes. So a lot of really tight Republican primaries um, in that district in Garrett County. Jonathan Schell also worked for Mitch McConnell's 2020 campaign after he was no longer in the state house. And then he defeated Richard Heath uh, in the primary with 56% of the vote. So Richard Heath has, has run for the office before. I think this vote was probably a little bit closer than I thought. I think Jonathan Schell was supported by a lot of the establishment Republicans. And I don't know, he, he kind of seemed like someone who was a rising star uh, in the Republican Party in Kentucky. Um, and so now he's looking to to break back into state government. So, Robert, what do you think about this commissioner of agriculture race? Does a Democrat have any shot? Yeah, you know, the more that I've been thinking about it, the more I think, you know, you we I think we're over indexing on the last one or maybe two elections in terms of Democrats' chances. Um, I think because Andy Bashir won so narrowly in a year when no other Democrats won, I think a lot of people are just kind of saying that Democrats have no chance to win any other races. And I feel like I've even said that at certain junctures in the past. And, and that's not really the way that these elections always work. Um, I don't think that I can't remember a time when one party swept 
the entire way through, even in landslide years for either party. There are often like races that kind of go weird ways. Um, but I do think Sierra Inlow has something working against her, and that's that a Democrat hasn't sat in this seat since the 90s. Yeah. The thing about it is I don't think Democrats have run a high-quality candidate in this race in decades. And Sierra Inlow does have all the markings of somebody who's taking the race very seriously and is a heavy contender. Like, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't have been surprised if somebody like Sierra Inlow, I mean, or if she herself were running for, like, auditor or treasurer or something. And typically, like, the Democratic candidate in the department or for the Commissioner of Agriculture is, like, somebody who is very um, unlikely to win or unlikely to be able to raise much money. Now, Sierra Inlow has kind of struggled to raise some money, but I do know that she's been asking. Um, so we'll see what her what her fundraising looks like in the next quarter. And while Jonathan Shell also looks really powerful on paper, I mean, you went over it. He's been really disappointing in terms of his you know electoral prowess um, in, in lots of times in the past. You know, he was elevated into leadership after leading the recruitment charge and then was immediately defeated in a primary by a teacher. Um, you know, the guy, this guy that had all this institutional support, he won by like less than, uh, he, he won, um, he, he lost that race, even though it was pretty close. He lost to like kind of a, a political unknown. And then in this primary, which I thought he was, you know, and I think you thought too, he was just kind of like walk away from, he, he didn't get 60% of the vote. He actually won by like a lower percentage than uh, that Sierra Inlow did in her primary. So, you know, there, there's some signs of for hope for the Democratic side, but I do think a lot of the momentum and a lot of like the fundamentals in the race are, are kind of on the Republican side. So it would take a lot for a Democrat to win, but I do think in the grand spectrum, I think people are kind of underrating Sierra Inlow, even if her chances aren't necessarily too high. Does, does that make sense? When I say that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I, it's hard to fundraise as a down ballot Democrat candidate because electing Andy Bashir is really important, but it's especially hard being the down ballot commissioner of agriculture Democrat candidate. So I do think it's tough, but I do think that she could be a strong candidate in the general. And I'm glad that we, we have someone like that running for that office. So the next race uh, to talk about is treasurer. So that race is Mark Metcalf versus Michael Bowman and Mark Metcalf is the Garrett County attorney, so in a, more representation for Garrett County. And he was a lieutenant colonel in the Army. He pretty easily defeated O.J. Oleka and Andrew Cooperwriter in the primary with 51% of the vote. And so if you'll remember on our primary preview episode, we thought that O.J. Oleka would win, um, but I did mention that Mark Metcalf did some using his own funds um, did some pretty large ad buys TV ad buys saying and his ad said things like that he's the Trump candidate for treasurer and he won with 50% of the vote so I I did see him potentially coming from behind but I I didn't see him running away with it um, Andrew Cooperwriter actually came in second with a little less than 30% of the vote Mark Metcalf said that the most important responsibility of the treasurer office is defending state revenues and pension funds from woke corporations. So even the down ballot candidates on the Republican side are, are getting into the, the wokeness debate. Like I said, he did self-fund. He loaned his campaign nearly $200,000, which he used uh, to fund the TV ad buys late in the campaign in the primary. And so... I guess we'll see if he has the funding to continue to do that in the general. Michael Bowman is the nominee for the Democratic side. He did not have a primary. He's a banker who ran for the office in 2019 and lost to Allison Ball. He got 39% of the vote then. And then the year before that, prior to running for treasurer, he ran for county clerk in Jefferson County in 2018 and lost that race as well. He grew up in a union home and went to L. He's also worked in the Bashir administration, and he said that he wants to improve transparency, increase financial literacy, and advocate for innovative policies to grow our economy. Um, so those are our two treasurer candidates. Yeah, my, Michael Bowman has run for office lots of time in the past, and uh, you know he has he has a 
won any, but I do think like the experience is a positive for him. Mark Metcalf, of course, you know, he was the Garrett County attorney. Uh, and I guess he still, he still is. Uh, and, and so he, you know, he has political experience. He's run a race and won. Um, and he really overperformed definitely what we thought he was going to do in the primary here and, um, you know, easily defeating his, his opponents. Um, you know, this is going to be a tough one for the Democrat to win. I think, you know, I don't think it's the one that the Republicans are should be the, the most heavily favored. Um, but I do think it's up there. And, and you know, it, it might be the one I think uh, Republicans might be most heavily favored in, honestly. Um, I do think, you know, in order for Michael Bowman to pull out the win here, basically it has to be a huge night for Democrats, you know, Andy Bashir winning by like 60 percent plus. Uh, and then also having coattails, like people not just voting for Andy Bashir, but also voting, you know, for, for everybody down down the ballot. I do think that it's inevitable that Andy Bashir is going to get the most votes of any Democrat on the ballot. But whether or not he's able to, you know, drag some other people along, that will be Michael Bowman's best, best chance, I think. So, you know, I, I have trouble seeing um, Michael Bowman win. But I mean, again, anything's possible. Uh, and I do think all Democratic candidates are being underrated in all of these races. But, you know, just honestly speaking, that's kind of where I come down with it. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if maybe there's some prior name recognition for running in the past and that might serve him well. But I agree. I think I think Treasurer is probably one of the more difficult races for Democrats to win. I know, you know, he's hired campaign staff and everything. Um so I, you know, I think he is running hard and I appreciate that he continues to run so that we have Democrats in, in these seats to run <laughs> much better than not having one there. Um, but he's probably learned a lot from prior races and maybe can come out stronger this time around. So the next race is Auditor, and that one is Allison Ball versus Kim Reeder. Allison Ball served two terms as treasurer. Her website says that she's returned a record amount of unclaimed property as treasurer. Prior to her election, she practiced bankruptcy law, and she was a prosecutor handling juvenile delinquency and child abuse cases. So she's basically like the opposite of me. I defended juvenile delinquency <laughs> cases and practiced bankruptcy law. But she went to Liberty University and then UK for law school and was president of the Federalist Society, which is, um, you know, a very conservative group on campus. And she also touts that she's had the highest vote totals um, the past two times when she's been on the ballot. I don't know. You know, I guess she's she's jumping from one state office to the other um, and has pretty high name recognition at this point, I think. And then Kim Reeder is a tax attorney from, she grew up in Rowan County and lives in Frankfurt. She went to Yale for undergrad, Duke for her master's, and UNC for law school. So she has a pretty impressive education resume. And she went on to work for very reputable tax law firms. She returned to Kentucky and became a full-time substitute teacher before eventually getting her teaching certificate. Um, and I believe she's in the current Emerge Kentucky class right now. I don't know. I, I think that Kim Reeder is is a strong candidate that is running in this race because that's the job that she wants. It's not just someone who's running for office to run for state office. I think she wants to be the auditor. And I appreciate a candidate like that. Um, and then, but I just think that Allison Ball, for whatever reason she wins big. Yeah. Um, and so I do think this race could be difficult for Democrats because this is really Kim Reader's first time jumping into the political arena as far as running for office. Yeah. Well, I think the reason why Allison Ball does pretty well is because one of the other places besides Louisville and Lexington where Democrats tend to do like better than other parts of the state is eastern kentucky there's a lot of like ancestral democrats there and people who still vote for democrats in state offices and she's from eastern kentucky so i think she takes away a lot of people who vote for democrats um in other races and that's at least what happened when she ran for treasurer both of those times now 
yeah, like Allison Ball has really high name recognition. People are comfortable voting for her because they know that they did that already. They're like, you know, they they know that, you know, she was very unobjectionable in the treasurer's office because, you know, what can you do as the treasurer? Not much. I think that the auditor is the next the the, the next office up from uh, treasurer. Yeah. I think it's the I think it's the I don't know if you have to do anything like have a if there's any credentials to be the secretary of state, but I think the secretary of state definitely has a job to do the auditor. Like you, we don't actually have to have an auditor that does anything. Um, we can have a guy that just stands there. Now we can have good auditors. We can have people that do a good job in that office and have things to do and direct the office and lead the office. Um, and, and we have had that in the past. Uh, I wouldn't say Mike Harmon necessarily did that. I would say like Crit Lou Allen did that. Like, I think that she's like a good example of somebody who like led the office. Now, Allison Ball jumping from treasurer to auditor, maybe that leaves a bad taste in someone's mouth. And like, if you are going to try to make a race out of the auditor's race, like maybe that's something to hit at. Like, what do you actually want to do? Like that, that's something that you could use. And, and Kim Reader does seem to have like a really interesting story. Like I'm interested to know, like, why did you jump from doing this like re- reputable tax work um, where you have this like, you know, exquisite legal, you know, JD, uh, like like really nice, uh, you know, resume to get law degrees and you got your teaching certificate back home in, in Rowan County. Like, you know, how did you end up doing that? And what is, how does that inform why you want to be the auditor? Like, I think that's an interesting story and could lead to, you know, people voting for. But like auditor is a, the type of race that it's difficult. It's 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 usually like the fourth race that people know about on an election when not a lot of people know that it's even going on. Right. Um, so, so getting people to like latch onto the auditor's race is pretty tough. Alison Ball really popular in terms of like people know who she is. So she's going to be tough to beat, but Kim Reader does like seem like she has some stuff going for her. And if she can really like capitalize on her story or attack uh, Alison Ball for, you know, just kind of moving from place to place like that, that's something that she could, she, she could do. Um, it's going to be tough to win against, you know, the only, uh, I guess one of only two people who have run statewide before on the Republican side. Nope, that's not true. There's just several people who've run because I guess Daniel Cameron, Michael Adams and Allison Ball all have run statewide for office before, but like, she's well known because of that. So it's going to be tough for Kim Reader, but you know, anything, anything can happen. So let's just, uh, let's just wait and see. Yeah. She, Kim Reader actually talks about her story on her campaign website, she moved back to Kentucky to take care of her mother. um, And that's how she started teaching. And and now she has gotten really involved in like coaching debate teams and and things like that. Um, And, and so yeah, I I do think she has a, a really interesting story. And I think you're right that the, the way to attack Allison Ball is to talk about jumping from one office to the next. But I'm not sure if people would know that she did that without talking about being, it. They Being told. Yeah. yeah, like they were probably like, oh, yeah, I voted for her last time, but, but maybe not even realize that she was the treasurer last time. So that's something that I think would, would need to be pointed out if you're going <laughs> to do that. So the next race is Secretary of State and... We have incumbent Michael Adams versus Buddy Wheatley. So Michael Adams is an election law attorney and the current Secretary of State. And while in office, he's he's pushed for conservative policies like voter ID laws, cleaning up voting rolls. But he also has advocated for early voting and worked with the Bashir administration to come up with a good voting plan during the pandemic. He was also the attorney for Eric Greitens, who was the Missouri governor who resigned due to accusations about campaign impropriety. And I mean, that was out there, you know, before he ran in 2019. And it didn't cost him that election as he defeated Heather French Henry with 52% of the vote. And then Buddy Wheatley is a former state representative who lost his northern Kentucky seat in 2022 after redistricting. He's also an attorney practicing labor and employment law. And before that, he was the fire chief of Covington and he went to law school while he was a firefighter, which I also think is is 
really cool story. He's advocating for more polling locations, more poll workers, and better access to voting. So I would say that a Democrat like Buddy Wheatley would have a good shot at this race, but I think Michael Adams is really popular. Like, even... I think that some Democrats will vote for him based on knowing his name and thinking he's done a good job so so far, like moderate Democrats or even like swing voters, independent voters. I think they'll vote for Michael Adams. Um, So I don't know. What do you think, Robert? One one thing about Michael Adams is that like he's also very online. (laughs) Like he uh, he has a pretty strong like social media presence. And, um, you know, I think he does a pretty good job on their of like staying above the fray and like making a lot of jokes and, um, you know, playing up the positive parts of his record about working with Andy Bashir being like, you know, I had all these really conservative uh, challengers knowing that like, I think most of the uh, people online are, you know, left of center or pretty progressive. So, you know, and that is something I've seen quite a bit is like people commenting on his posts, like, you know, uh, you, you know, you're the only Republican I'm going to vote for. And I typically like respond below and I was like, you should check out Buddy Wheatley. <laughs> so um, it, it's, it's Thank tough. Thank you for your service, Robert. <laughs> right. Uh, it, it's, it, it is tough because like, I, I mean, I, I think, I mean, it's, it's hard to say because I think Michael Adams is walking into this race as the strongest, most well-positioned Republican running, but he also has a high quality democratic opponent. Um, Buddy Wheatley is a a better like, you know, compare it. I mean, I don't want to speak ill of anybody running on uh, uh, or running for office on on the ballot. Like but, you know, Michael Bowman has uh, has not won an election. Buddy Wheatley has won several. Um, He, uh, you know, is well established politically in northern Kentucky there. He has a base of support, people who really love him up there and want him back in in office. Um, So like on the treasurer side, I, I don't necessarily think that the Republican running in that race, Mark Metcalf, is as well positioned as Michael Adams. But I think that his his opponent is not necessarily as strongly positioned there. Um, but I think Michael Adams is, uh, you know, uh, much more well positioned, but he's going to have somebody who's going to be able to raise a, a, a chunk of money who is well established throughout the state, um, served, uh, you know, he didn't serve in leadership in the House, but he was definitely thought of as like a leader in his time in the legislature. You know, we've talked, I mean, we've talked to all these people, but like, you know, Buddy at- Buddy Wheatley is definitely somebody who's like well-established and people really like. So, you know, this is a, this is a tough one for, for Buddy to come out as the victor, because I do think Democrats, Democrats do have like a soft spot for Michael Adams, but there's a lot of parts of Michael Adams record and story that are attack vectors. Heather French Henry probably couldn't have used those because glass houses, throwing stones, et cetera, et cetera. Steve Henry, I don't know if he went to prison, but like did some shady stuff when he was running for governor. Um, So like raising a campaign violation, campaign finance violations about, you know, his time as Eric Greitens lawyer may not have been the best strategy for Heather French Henry, but you know, Buddy Wheatley can push on that a little bit. Like you may think, you know, Michael Adams, but did you know X, Y, Z? And like, that's, that's something you can do. And I do think secretary of state races, that's like, that's a race that people pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not as much as governor, not as much as attorney general, but like people do want to know who the secretary of state is. And I think especially in 2023 with voting such a major issue, like it is possible um, that that people are going to pay closer attention to this vote. Listen to what Buddy Whitley has to say. So it's going to take just like all these other races, it's going to take a really well-run uh, campaign. But, you know, I do think Buddy Wheatley. Um, uh, you know, he's the type of person who could pull it off if it's going to happen. Will be very difficult, though. Yeah, I agree. So the next race is Attorney General, and that one is Russell Coleman versus Pamela Stevenson. Russell Coleman's a former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Kentucky, and he entered the race and racked up endorsements really early and, and did not draw a primary challenger, and he's raised a significant amount of money. He's a former FBI agent who has also worked as counsel to Mitch McConnell and worked at Frost Brown Todd. During his U.S. attorney tenure, he promised a more visible presence from federal law enforcement. 
And, and I think he kind of did that um, as the U.S. attorney. He also published an op-ed during the 2020 protest saying that his office would seek out looting, burglarizing, and carjacking. Um, so, I mean, he, he definitely seems like a conservative Republican. But I also know some moderate Democrats who respect him and respected him as a prosecutor. So that's Russell Coleman. And then, of course, Pamela Stevenson. Um, we've talked to her several times on the show. She was born and raised in Louisville and graduated from the Brown School. She went to Indiana for college and law school and then served 27 years in the U.S. Air Force. She also founded Stevenson Law Center, um, a nonprofit legal services firm that offers services to veterans and middle-income families. And, of course, we know her from her time in the legislature where um, she's become really well-known for her floor speeches and even went viral a couple times this past session. She came in second in the Democratic primary that Charles Booker won for the seat in 2018 um, and then ran again when Booker ran for U.S. Senate in 2020, and then she held the seat in 2022, though she had a close primary um, with a DSA challenger, Robert Lavertis Bell. She's the first black woman to run for attorney general in Kentucky. So I think that this is probably the race, other than the governor's race, that people will pay the most attention to. And I think that Pamela Stevenson is probably the Democrat that stands the best chance of being able to raise a significant amount of money in the race. Um, but what do you think her chances are of winning? Yeah, I think the race is going to have to go a certain kind of way. I think Andy Bashir is going to have to win comfortably. I think that she's going to have to, you know, go viral in the way that she definitely has the capability to do. Um, she's going to have to, uh, become a cause celeb um, among like mm -hmm. progressive Democrats in Kentucky, like she has the capability to do. But if all of those things happen, I do think she has a chance to win. I mean, she wants this seat, right? She, she was like out front. I'm going to run for attorney general. I want to be the attorney general. Um, that was really clear from the start of this cycle that, that that's what she did. She's, she's put together a really effective team of experienced campaign hands um, in in the state, um, people who have worked both in Louisville and statewide, um, some really important statewide workers. Uh, you know, I, I think she certainly has the capability um, to have everything go right. The problem is you then have to have everything go right. Mm -hmm. um, and, and Russell Coleman is um, not going to mess up. Uh, I mean, I think that I, when, when you talk about being respected as a prosecutor, that's like the thing that I hear the most from people in the defense bar is that like, you know, you respect people that get their work done and treat you like a person and give you the things you need and cross all the T's and dot all I's and do all the stuff they're supposed to do. Like Russell Coleman does does that. Like he's an effective attorney. Um, and so I, I think he's going to be an effective candidate. Um, he's He's got a set of issues that is going to work effectively. I mean, say what you want to. And, and I mean, I, you know, we, we, if you listen to the show, you know, where we come down on all of these issues, but you know, people are concerned with like petty crime. People care about like people read about carjackings or see them on the five o'clock news. And um, you know, there, the, the number of shootings has increased substantially. Like there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of like crime news and, um, on a certain type of crime, um, which is certainly increasing. And, and there's this like odd phenomenon that, I mean, I don't really know the name for it, but it's like urban crime that activates like rural conservatives mm -hmm. um, where they, they hear about crime in Louisville and that makes them want to vote a certain way and implement certain types of policies that may not be the favorite policies of the people who are the most impacted by crime. So, you know, that that's certainly something that Russell Coleman has working for him. Um, so, you know, he's going to run a good race, but things, things can line up for, for Pamela Stevenson. And I think she's going to run a hard race. And if the opportunities do present themselves in this race, I, I think that she, she can, she can win. Um, but, but that's, that's not, she's not favored. I'll put it that way. I don't think she's going to be favored to win, but the, the possibility is out there. And, you know, it's, it's in like the, 
25 to 30% range, which is not that bad. Like that's, that's pretty good. That's like what Donald Trump had when he became the president, for example, like that's where we would have rated that. So like, it's not outside the realm of possibility by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so it is just like, we got to do the work and, and see what happens, but that's kind of where I come down with it. You, you nodded your head, Jazz. So do you, do you agree with that? Or do you think? Yeah, I do. I, I think that Pamela Stevenson is a very strong attorney general candidate, but she just has the disadvantage of running against a really strong Republican candidate who seems yeah. to like be a, a machine at, at raising yeah. money and getting endorsements. And he, you know, he kept anyone else from entering the race on the Republican side. And so I think that's difficult. I think the, the way that she could win is, you know, Andy Bashir needs to turn out people in Louisville and Lexington and, if he does that, I think she gains a lot from that as well. Um, and so that, you know, if if the turnout, Democrat turnout in Louisville and Lexington is astronomical, I, I think she could win because I, I think a lot of people in Louisville um, didn't like how Daniel Cameron handled the Breonna Taylor case. Um, and so I, I think she could do really well here if turnout is high. Um, yeah, but all all of these races are, are tough for Democrats to win, probably. Except one, one, the governor's race. One last one thing about this that's you know I understand it. It's just crazy that like Daniel Cameron was the first Attorney General Republican Attorney General in like a hundred years, and it has gone from we've literally never elected a Republican to like it's going to be really 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 hard for a Democrat to win yeah. in the span of four years. Like, and, and I understand, I mean, it is, it really was kind of like a dam broke and everybody like fl flooded into the Republican party because of Donald Trump. But like, it is just kind of wild that that's the spot that we're in. Um, and and the, the one other piece of that is that like, we've also not really ever run um, a candidate like, Pamela Stevenson. It would have been really impossible for a candidate like Pamela Stevenson to win the Democratic nomination up until this time. Um, and now, you know, yeah. nobody ran against her. So, like, that's just kind of the way things have gone, the way that realignment in the past decade has kind of happened. But it is just kind of, like, crazy to sit here and, and think about it, how all of that has, has worked out. Yeah. So, of course, the last race is the governor's race. And I said that they're all tough for Democrats, except maybe this one, but I still think this one, I said that, but I still think that winning as a Democrat statewide is hard right now. Um, and so the governor's race, of course, is Daniel Cameron versus Andy Bashir. Daniel Cameron is the current attorney general, and he won the Republican primary for governor pretty easily um, with about 47% of the vote. And the second place finisher, Ryan Quarles, just got 22%. Cameron is an attorney who worked for Mitch McConnell and then for Frost Brown Todd. Um, so similar road um, as Russell Coleman. I think as attorney general, Daniel Cameron is probably best known for better or worse, um, depending on which side you're on for his handling of the Breonna Taylor case, and then also his defense of anti-abortion laws. He's also making much of Bashir pausing indoor worship services during the height of the pandemic and talking about his faith in his ads. And then I'd also say that he's nationalizing the race, um, running as the Trump candidate and comparing Andy Bashir to Joe Biden. Um, and then just another note that I, I think will be something that we'll, I've already seen and that we'll see during the campaign is that when he ran for attorney general four years ago, he said that he was not running to be the governor. And here we are four years later after just one term. He's doing just that when four years ago he was criticizing Andy Bashir for doing that. Of course, Andy Bashir is the current governor, also an attorney and a former attorney general. He worked for Stites and Harbison prior to running for attorney general, so another big law firm, kind of like Frost Brown Todd. 
He won his AG race against Whitney Westerfield by approximately 2,000 votes and then defeated Matt Bevin in the 2019 gubernatorial race by about 5,000 votes. So he's had very, very close statewide elections in the past. And as governor, I think Bashir is most known for his handling of COVID, um, also his handling of the weather disasters in eastern and western Kentucky. And then I think some of these like economic investments like the battery plant in Hardin County. Um, and th- then I think he's also become known more recently as being the governor who is opposing all of this anti-trans and anti-LGBTQ legislation. Those are the things I think of when I think about his first four years of governor. And so, Robert, do you think all of that about Daniel Cameron and Andy Bashir? do you think that's accurate? And what do you think about the gubernatorial race? Yeah, I, I think you're exactly correct. I, I think I think that, you know, especially here in town in Louisville, like the Breonna Taylor situation, tragedy, um, killing, whatever, like however you want to phrase it, um, that that is certainly the thing that Daniel Cameron is the most known for here locally. And I do think that like he handled it poorly however you want to look at it. Like he wasn't he didn't really defend the police like I think a lot of people wanted to when he could have just like said absolutely not, the cops didn't do anything wrong, the cops never do anything wrong, which I do which is what I think a lot of people wanted them to do. But then also like the way that he pursued the indictments was insulting to a lot of people and also like ended up with him getting sued right um with the way that he instructed the grand jury kind of the way that was all handled so i think that was a pretty significant debacle i do remember being in the news quite a bit it's going to be tough for andy Bashir to kind of capitalize on this because i don't think that that's necessarily the issues that he wants to run on um i think he wants to run mostly on his own record and the thing is like i think that he has a good record i think that most people think he has a good record and i think like The average Kentucky voter is significantly more moderate than we're being made out to be like, you know, we're Trump state or whatever. But I think that that is like when you compare Trump to Biden and a binary type situation um, and and like the National Democratic Party being what it is and and having the reputation that it does. And I do think Andy Bashir has absolutely been able to like transcend what the national definition of a Democrat is and has been able to like be himself kind of frame the Democratic Party in a way that he wants it to be framed, be able to like be a Democrat in the way that he thinks that that's important to be. And I do think, you know, um, you're exactly right in in what people are going to know him for, which is like, you know, COVID, the economic story that he wants to tell in terms of like bringing jobs, especially some of these high profile ones like the battery plant in Hardin County. There was a new like Toyota announcement today where they're going to be building some of the electronic electric vehicles for Toyota here in Georgetown. And then, yes, of course, like the, the natural disasters. And of course, this natural disasters have a flip side, too. And there's negative stories that go with some of those. Don't want to overlook those. And those are definitely something that the Republicans will try to hammer him on. But like as the Republicans have tried to make issues in this campaign, it just seems like nothing is really getting its teeth in like they want it to. Like, I just don't see the worship service thing as as like creating as much controversy as they want, but beyond their base. Uh, the, this whole like board of education thing that we're getting ready to talk about here in a minute, um, that hasn't really panned out for them. So I think it's going to be tough for them to find something to, to, to run on. But the thing is, you just have such a high default. I'm going to vote for the Republican no matter what mm-hmm. in Kentucky. Um, with that said, you know, I do think right now um, for, for a, like most of Andy Bashir's term, I thought he was underrated um, to be reelected. I think it's swung too far in the other direction. Where <laughs> yeah, I, do I think, think that's probably right. I, I do think too many people are just like, oh, Andy's got this for sure. Um, he doesn't. Uh, it's going to be tough for him to win. He hasn't ever blown anybody out. Like, he, you can't blow anybody. It's going to be really hard to blow anybody out as a Democrat in Kentucky. I don't want to say it's impossible. His dad did it. His dad did it twice. Um, that was a different time. Mm-hmm. But I do, but, but, you know, uh, I do think if, you know, people vote based on, the personality and vote based on the the record that exists, I do think it's possible for him to to win by a lot, but I just don't think it's likely. And in fact, I think we're overrating his chance to win. I think he should be favored, but I think it's like a 55%, 60% at the highest chance to win, 
which is like basically a coin flip um, with a slight favorite to Andy Bashir. And, and, you know, we need to get out. We need to work. Um, I think Andy is doing everything he can to win. And, you know, the thing is, if he does manage to win, winning election and then re-election in a, a state like Kentucky as a Democrat really positions you in your career in politics in the United States to kind of do what you want. Like, he has a record where if he wants to run for president in, uh, you know, 2028, he he could. Like, I think he'd be on the list of people that they're looking at. Like, so, I, I mean... I don't know if Andy Bashir has those ambitions, but he's a politician. Anybody who runs for office, like that's typically where they're looking ultimately. Like, I think probably, you know, anybody on the ballot today like wants to be the president. If you're going to run for office, that's pretty much where you're looking. So, you know, I do think that like, you know, he wants to do the best that he can and he's doing the best that, that he can. And I do think he has a good chance to win. I think he's favored. But just I think we're thinking about this as like it's a sure thing when it just isn't. So I think, you know, I, you, you seem like you're you're agreeing with me there on that. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that something that's different to me about Andy Bashir running now than in 2019 is in 2019, he kind of seemed like the candidate who was the most politician like it it was like his dad was governor and then he ran for attorney general and then he ran for governor and he he didn't stick out as far as having a big personality or anything like that in 2019 but was able to organize really well and people disliked Matt Bevin and so he won but now I think we have been able to get to know Andy Bashir over the last four years and especially during covid and he's really shown us like how warm of a person he is and i think you're right that he's been able to kind of carve out his own lane as a democrat and stay true to himself um and so i i think that more democrats or left-leaning people are probably more excited to vote for andy bashir now than they were in 2019 at the same time, I, I think there's are a lot of people who absolutely hate Andy Bashir and call him things like dictator Andy and things like that. Um, but I, I don't think that that is the overwhelming, you know, I don't think that that's the majority. I think this is going to be a really close race that could swing either way, but I would lean a slight Andy Bashir victory. Yeah, totally agree with that. Yeah, I think I think we're on the same page on, on on most of these races. So that probably makes sense since we talk about this a lot. So <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So that's that's the races. Those are the yeah. elections that are going to happen there. I guess this is our first uh, you know conversation since the primary where everybody's been on the ballot. So there you go. Um, I do want to talk about a couple of news stories before we get out of here. Um, two of which center around Louisville, and I think are, are worth talking about. Um, uh, I think that they're, well, okay, we'll just talk about them and, and then I'll get to what I want to say later. So the first one is about the um, the DOJ report and kind of the city's response to it. So we talked a, a few weeks ago about the U.S. Department of Justice's report about LMPD, which detailed really horrific acts perpetrated by the police against citizens. Uh, you know, it, it's going to it's going to end in a consent degree. Like it, it, it's not great. It's not great for the city. It's not great for the police department. But it's it reflects the reality that we have been told about for, for you know, forever, but definitely has been top of mind for many people since the Breonna Taylor killing. One of the major criticisms about the DOJ report from the public was that none of the officers that were implicated in the reporting were named. They just kind of talked about the issues at hand. Um, so there was no way for the public to know whether or not the officers still work for the police. And last week, the city, not the Department of Justice, but with the cooperation of the Department of Justice, the city of Louisville released a database, which is really just kind of a website, that details 62 of these cases that the DOJ investigated. The website includes documents like use of force reports about these cases, information about whether PSU and PIU cases exist, and any documentation about actions taken in the investigations, any discipline that reported uh, that, that resulted from these cases, and any other supporting documentation about these cases, like incident reports, citations, canine search reports, incident, like all of that kind of stuff is also included. So all of the information that the city has that's public record about the cases that the DOJ investigated is now easy to access in a website that the city has put forward. 
And just in case you're wondering, PSU is public serve. What's what's the S stand for? Public PIU is standards. Yes, professional standards, and then PIU is uh uh. Uh, So those are like investigations of the police. That's what those are. So like those are the reports that that are making their way to the public. So, you know, all of the information on this website, which is now readily available, is paperwork. It's 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 like pieces of paper. It's PDFs. It's like that kind of stuff. There is no video footage uh, that the city can consume easily. um, And there are no photographs. Also, the status of the officers involved in the incidents hasn't been released, although the interim chief, Jacqueline Lynn Villaroyal, has said that she that that information about the officers is forthcoming. It's not available yet, though. Um, So, you know, it is just the paperwork and there are like, you know, other people have wanted for more information, body body cam footage, et cetera, to be available. And it is not available, uh, at least not yet. Um, The Courier Journal did do a pretty significant cross reference of the DOJ report and what the DOJ had said, and then what these uh, pieces of information that the police created themselves say um, to kind of, you know, compare and contrast. And there is a significant contrast about like what the DOJ reported about what happened and what, you know, the, the internal documentation that the police op- police department mm-hmm. has says, which which I think is a real good public service and really shows how these yeah. making these things readily available has really helped to like tell this story. Um, so, you know, uh, that, that's, I think that that's ultimately a good thing to have these things available. So to know about these cases, 29 out of the 62 have already gone through the PSU or PIU process and have been closed. So, you know, some of them had discipline, a lot of them did not. A lot of them were like, well, I guess you didn't do anything wrong. Let's go about our, our, our lives. And, and for those 29 cases, the city will not be doing any additional investigation, any additional punishment. Um, that's on advice from the Jefferson County Attorney's Office um, that doing so would be a violation of rights. And uh, Jasmine, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's like double jeopardy, I believe is what that's called. I don't think you can like, you know, be gotten. If you, somebody says you didn't get in trouble for this, they can't come back and be like, no, psych, you did get in trouble. Um, if the investigation is completed, um, it's completed. I know that's how that works in like uh, the courts. I don't know if necessarily that's how it works in like disciplinary hearings, but I guess that's the advice of the Jefferson County Attorney's Office. Um, so, uh, there are 33 other cases that are open that have not gone through the PSU or PIU process. And the interim chief herself has said that she will be leading the investigations into those to see if any actions are, are necessary. So the, the situation with a lot of these cases already being closed has been frustrating for many activists and councilman, Metro Councilman DeCorey Arthur did speak up on behalf of that community saying, quote, the fact that these incidents happened, people were hurt in pain responding to them. And then we hear from our mayor, well, we can't do anything about half of them. It's like a continued cycle of that harm, unquote. So, you know, that I, I kind of understand, I understand both sides of this. You know, the, the mayor was not the mayor when any of this occurred. Um, it is uh, unfortunate that, you know, the, the the situation is what it is, where a lot of stuff came out after um, with the DOJ that, you know, we that we can't do anything legally about it, that that's what the advice of the Jefferson County Attorney's Office is. But also, like, whether there's a creative way to get around it to, to make sure that justice is done, you know, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know. And, and it seems like it seems like no is going to be the answer for now, but I can understand how no would be a really frustrating answer for a lot of the people that have experienced harm uh, and, and from, from the police. Um, ultimately, I think that this is a really good step by the city, although, you know, it feels obvious. Like, it feels obvious that the city should release this information and make this information uh, readily available to the public. Um, but the city hasn't always taken what I think to be the most obvious path, especially around issues of transparency with the police. So it's, it, it is really good that they're doing so this time. I don't want to give like too much credit to be like, Hey, you did the obviously right thing. But given that that hasn't been what we've done in the past, it is good and it, it should be committed as, as something, you know, good and brave. Mayor Greenberg's quote about this is, when the DOJ released their findings, the chief and I both stood right here and committed ourselves to being open and transparent as we worked to strengthen LMPD. Today, I believe we are living up to that commitment, unquote. So let's hope that this commitment doesn't end just at transparency and does move towards some sort of restorative justice for the cases that are not closed. And then, you know, if there's something that can be done about the cases that have been closed, let's hope that there's something that, that is done, done there as well, if it's possible. 
Um, Jasmine, you know, as somebody who worked in and around the system for quite a long time, like, what do you think about these steps? Do you think that they're meaningful? Do you think that it matters? And do you think the city deserves any credit for these steps that they're taking? Yeah, I absolutely think that they're meaningful and that they deserve credit for them. I mean, the, the contrast between the DOJ reports and the city's reports, I mean, things like that are things that people like criminal defense attorneys have been talking about for years about the police not always being accurate or truthful and, and people really believe that. <laughs> um, and so to, to actually have some transparency and have this database, I think is a really good thing. As far as not being able to do anything about the closed investigations, it, it sounds more like, some kind of immunity from future prosecution than double jeopardy because the concept of double jeopardy is that you can't be charged for a crime twice that you've been acquitted of. Um, And so, you know, maybe there's something um, in their contracts or in a regulation or law or city ordinance there. Maybe there's something that prevents that, but it, it sounds like more of an immunity situation from, once an investigation's closed, that's it. Um, yeah. Then a double jeopardy kind of thing. But yeah, yeah. Not I a mean, that's certainly unfortunate for the people who have experienced harm from the police. Um, but hopefully, the administration will continue to work at this. I, I think like we have first good steps, and now it's a matter of um, continuing to use the findings of this report to have more transparency and accountability from our law enforcement. Absolutely. Okay. So that is, that is the first thing I wanted to talk about. The second is um, about open records requests, something else that's been kind of a thorn in the side of the city for a while. So as of like, I guess last week, the city of Louisville had a backlog of 955 open records requests sitting on its books the city is legally obligated to respond to them and they are legally responded to they're legally obligated to respond to them in five days. But the resources the city has put towards the transparency of open records has not been able to keep up with the pace uh, and the demand for this information. So to address this problem, Mayor Greenberg said that the city was going to hire six new staff whose job it would be to respond to these requests. That's their whole job. And also in, in the plan that was put forth to deal with these open records requests, um, a new department that's going to be called the Department of Records Compliance is going to be created and will sit under a deputy mayor. Another piece of the plan is to retrain or, I guess, initially train city employees about the laws regarding open records requests, again, which requires them to respond within five days. So a lot of this is good news. Uh, The new department, I think, is a really good idea because a major issue that I have heard from a lot is that there isn't like a single point of contact uh, for open records requests. If you make, make a request, it has to go to the right person or else it just kind of gets lost in the ether and you never know who it ended up with. You're able to now like make a request and if you don't know where it went or you don't know where, where its status is, there's like one person whose job it is to know that or at least to direct you to the right spot. That's certainly a good change. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that's going to streamline things substantially and make it so that it's a much better process. In addition, another really good part of this plan is that it puts LMPD requests under control of the city structure. Whereas before, if you needed LMPD data or needed LMPD information, you had to request it from LMPD and they were the people that you talked to in order to get it out. Now it's, I want to say civilian, although I know that police are technically civilians, they're not in the military, but it's under like the city's structure. It's not under the police's structure themselves. Um, and I think that that's good, too. I think that, you know, that's something that will help build trust. I think, um, you know, there there is innately some distrust of the police from a lot of parts of the community. So, like, taking this away is a way to actually increase trust in the police um, about stuff like this. So that's that's good. I think that's a good thing. Um, the entire plan is only going to cost about $500,000, which is not a lot in the grand scheme of things and will address a problem that has existed for a, quite a long time. Joe Girth, who is a columnist for the Courier Journal, actually wrote his column about this plan very recently, uh, and, and I think it was a it was a smart point to say, you know, the devil's in the details. The mayor's administration is going to mess up. 
bad things are going to happen. That's just the way of things. Things are going to go bad uh, on some level. And the real, you know, the real, you know, power of this plan will be shown when the things that went bad in his own administration come up for review or will be requested in, in some of these open records requests. And is this person going to be empowered and able to get that information out? Because that is, I think, what people think is the issue here is like the city doesn't want us to know, so they're hiding the information. And Mayor Greenberg is early on in his administration. Not a lot has had a chance to go wrong yet. Um, and, and so that just like with with the plan, um, with with the plan, with the police officers and the accountability there, like the transparency piece is good, but the accountability part is coming later. And that is when we're really learning whether or not these things work. So, yeah. It is early in the Greenberg administration. He hasn't been there for six months yet. There has, uh, but given that, there have been some really good developments to deal with some some simmering tensions that have existed for years, um, and, and to address the discontent with those issues. Um, th that's that's good, and it's also happening pretty quickly. It's happening in the first six months. That's that's very good. That's something I think that is a very good thing that the mayor is doing. However, with both of these issues, there is still yet to be some, some proof that this is going to be a meaningful change um, because transparency is only the first half of the deal. The accountability piece is the next half and seeing whether this transparency and the good steps that we're taking with transparency lead to accountability. That is the real question um, and, and, and the thing that is yet to happen. So nothing uh, all good things all good things that the mayor has done here but still some steps yet to go before we can say it's un, uh, unquestionably uh, a good thing so jasmine uh the open records request you already talked a little bit about the the um the boj report and the police website anything else you want to say about the open records piece no i think you're right about everything that you said i'll just say in my experience open records requests each one always seemed to be handled differently to me. Um, and so to have a streamlined process seems like a really good thing. And hopefully that continues to get better. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing about the city is uh, it takes like a strong personality to like handle the other people in power. Uh, the mayor is ultimately the authority, but there are some really powerful chairs and people that wield power in different places and being able to exercise like your authority over them is something that, you know, I think Mayor Greenberg has shown a little bit more aptness to do than, than Mayor Fisher did at any point in his administration. So, you know, different people have different strengths for sure. Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about is this issue with the Kentucky Board of Education, which is getting two new members after some drama. So two seats on the Kentucky Board of Education went unfilled after terms expired for people um, about a year ago. Uh, this fact was brought to light by reporting by Olivia Krauth of the Courier-Journal last week. Um, when the terms expired, the members who filled those positions, they just kind of continued to serve. They continued to show up. Um, and in the reporting, one member did say that they were interested in being renominated, and the other said that they were going to actually submit a letter of rec a resignation and wanted to get off the board. So um, this all kind of came to a head in some reporting last week, and the Republican Party definitely tried to make an issue out of it. Um, based on the newish law, Andy Bashir was required to appoint some Republicans. One of the two people did, was required to be a Republican to fill those seats. And so the chair of the GOP sent a letter to the governor calling out the fact that he needed to nominate a Republican and wasn't doing it. And, and, and Governor Bashir, in his response, said, you know, that there was this constitutional provision that exists that board members, quote, serve until their successors are appointed, unquote. And, you know, said that he was working diligently to find replacements. And sure enough, on Tuesday, May the 30th, the governor did appoint two new people to the board. Uh, Julia Pyle for, from Boone County, who uh, is a Republican. Um, she's going to be filling one of the spots. And then Diana Woods of Lexington is going to fill the second spot. So two new people after this was brought to light by the Courier-Journal and made a, an issue of by the Republican Party. Andy Bashir just went ahead and nominated two people. And now the issue is, I guess, resolved. So it did seem like the Republicans wanted to make an election issue out of this. But I don't I, I mean, it did make news in my circles. And I guess like the people that I know that pay really close attention were talking about it for like a day but I just didn't see it penetrate. Like my mom didn't know that this was going on. Um, and I don't think people that aren't paying really close attention uh, 
are, are going to care about this at all. Am I wrong about that, Jasmine? And and do, what do you think about this whole issue? I mean, do you do you think that Andy Bashir handled it correctly, or do you feel like uh, you know there were? How do you feel about any of this? Um, and do you think it's going to be a big deal? I don't like that it happened because we're in an election season, and it's just something that gives Republicans fuel, and it. It's like, oh, he said he was working diligently, and then poof, people are appointed once it came to light. Um, and so I don't like that that's what happened, but I, I think you're right that the people who know about this story are people who pay pretty close attention, but I do think it could be used and maybe be persuasive to, I don't know, these people who are kind of like in a panic about like children's education as part of this greater conversation about Jason Glass and wokeness in schools and Andy Bashir messing with the board. You know, I I think it could be used as this greater like attack on how the Bashir administration has handled public education. And maybe that speaks to some people. But I don't think it's been this huge thing that is going to dominate the election by any means. Yeah. I think, I think education fair. as a whole will, but maybe not this particular story. Yeah. I, I do think that that's fair. Um, you know, definitely kind of an unforced error, but at the same time, like it was resolved pretty quickly. Um, yeah. I, 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 I guess I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I mean, I think that the, the defense, like, that this happens a lot and most people just get renominated and just keep showing up. And the fact that they changed the structure of the board recently and like forced the, mm -hmm. the hands of Andy Bashir to nominate a Republican, like whatever, like, yeah, I, I guess it, it does make sense um, that, that it, it shouldn't have happened. But yeah, I think ultimately uh, this isn't going to be something we remember by, by November. Like I will be like, Oh, Oh yeah. I guess that happened back in May. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think it's going to change anybody's opinion, uh, either way, but, but yeah, um, definitely, definitely like a hole that we didn't even step in. All right. Well, there you go. Um, there's the election setup and stories about Louisville and stories about the Kentucky board of education. We, we, we're, we produced a show this week, Jasper. Yeah. Can we'll you we'll see if it gets posted and what it sounds like, but <laughs> yeah, it it's going to sound great. We're going to, it's going to be great. And we will be back to normal before you know it. Uh, yeah, this move cannot last forever i think that that's kind of how i feel about it but it may it may it may last forever <laughs> um anyways uh jasmine how can people get a hold of us they can find us on twitter and instagram at my old pod they can like our facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice we also have a newsletter you can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old kentucky newsletter maybe we'll get that out one day um, and we also have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast Network and the Ford Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week. Go down to the tavern and drink with my friends. No woman following me, watching what I spend. But I do love a pretty woman, how I wish she was mine. Her breath is as fresh as the two
Thank you. 